0: this week on dig me out With your
1: hosts,
2: Jason Zia and Tim Minichi, Jay, this week we are back with a roundtable. Ones that I like to call In the 90s. I call that because it's literally what we're doing. In the 90s. Everything we do is about the 90s, Jay. Did you know that?
0: I've heard a rumor about that, yeah. yeah.
2: So, no, these are special episodes for our roundtables. We do these twice a year. The In the 90s is when we take a hugely successful 80s artist like we did with Duran Duran, Metallica, Van Halen Uh on previous episodes. And we look at how they navigated the 90s, the shifting landscape of the 90s. Was it quicksand? Did it swallow them? Because, Jay, you know, when we were kids, we were told quicksand was going to be a really big problem based on all the shows that we watched, whether it was The A-Team or (laughs) Hardcastle and McCormick. You know, all those shows had, had some sort of a quicksand episode. Mm-hmm. hasn't prov- proven to be a, a massive problem, but for some bands, they did get swallowed up and chewed up and spit out, and uh, we like to figure out if these bands uh, survived the 90s or if they were done in by the 90s, and for this episode, we're going to be talking about you two. Who's that? Yeah. We'll get into this indie band that people might not have heard of, <laughs> Right, and with that... <laughs> With help from two gentlemen who have been here many times before, joining us from Texas, a Longhorn State, Jerry Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say things that are Texas in nature. Yeah, J- uh, J.R. J.R. Ewing. Yeah. <laughs> Eric Krups, yeah, just welcome back.
1: Hi guys, welcome. Uh ha- happy to be back and I'm happy to tell you about the horses that are out in the stable. Excellent. No, I don't have I don't have horses, okay? Earl Campbell. Yeah, Bum Phillips. You know, J.R. Ewing. Just naming things. Yeah. yeah. SMU Mustangs, Cheating. <laughs>
0: I, I don't have horses yet, but my daughter does ride horses, and I bought cowboy boots recently, so it's only a matter of time.
1: whoa, okay oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're in the part of uh Texas that everybody thinks is the only cool part of Texas. <laughs> I'm here to tell you Austin is not the only coolest uh city mm-hmm. in Texas Dallas Fort Worth is very awesome.
2: uh cowboy boots are one thing when you get the hat and lasso, then we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> I want there's to see so Jay many, on YouTube doing lasso tricks.
0: There's so many boot repair places uh, around me. Like every ten, literally every ten feet is a uh, shoe or boot repair repair shop.
1: Well, so, you got I'm all like, these punk, you got all these punk rockers with their full sleeve tats, and realize, <laughs> hey man, I like country, so they buy a Stetson, and so they need to get their boots repaired. Right. Just saying.
0: <laughs> I mean, it just it makes sense. <laughs>
2: All right, and joining us once again, he was just here for the last round table, as a matter of fact. I was. You were. <laughs> Joe Royland, welcome back. So soon. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be back yet again. Do they have cowboy boots in Maine? What, they what's they the, do. <laughs> what's the
0: native footwear in Maine?
2: <laughs> uh, Moccasin? Pro- probably L.L. <laughs> L-
3: Bean boots.
2: Ah, uh,
0: there we go. That's, that's a good one, yeah. <laughs>
2: Jay, just want to mention real quick, this week, we are in our second week of our May Studio partnership. We're going to be giving away a pair of Regent headphones for one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com forward slash digmeout. You can go to studio.com to check them out, and you can get 15% off your purchase with the code digmeout. That's one word, D-I-G-M-E-O-U-T. Coming up later in the show, we're going to be talking about... Our region headphones, the ones that we've been using since last fall, and give you an update on those. So we're talking about U2. Let me just start out with this is I have found, and I was not expecting this, but based on our comments on on Patreon, which we'll get to, and then also on Facebook, this is a divisive band. Some people really hate U2. And some people are this is the greatest band in the world and they love this band. So which I find interesting because, uh, you know, for a band that's had this much longevity, you know, they started in basically the late 70s. And if you look at other bands of that have existed for this long, I mean, you're really looking at a very s- small number of bands. You're looking at like the Rolling Stones have been together basically for, you know, since the 60s. You know, uh, there have been some bands that have uh, changed a lot of members, but this is a band that's four original members. Um, But do people hate the Rolling Stones? I don't think people hate the Rolling Stones. They might say, oh, you know, I'm sick of them or whatever. But they don't, I don't think they have vitriol hate for them. But there are some people that really, really hate U2. So tell me, guys, how much do you hate U2 or do you not hate them at all? (laughs) Eric, I'll start with you. Uh,
1: I love U2 overall. Um, Can't say lots of positive things about their last three or four records, but over, but I can't let those records overshadow how important this band is i will get to why but uh, that's my simple answer okay joe
3: i go back and forth between loving you two and just being ambivalent about them okay i don't hate them no hate
2: though jay uh
0: i'm kind of where joe is uh maybe a little bit more casual uh there'll be singles i hear that i really really love and and then there's long periods of time where I could care less.
2: Okay. I I was a casual fan in the eighties, and I watched the videos and listened to the songs on the radio, but I never bought any albums. The first my first YouTube purchase was a single of one from Octune Baby, because it had a buffalo on it, and I lived in Buffalo, and I was like, that's cool. <laughs> Wow, you're easy. <laughs> wow. I am. Um, I'm all about I, I'm all about that hometown Buffalo pride. Uh so no, but I, I Octune baby was the first album that I got into in the mm-hmm. 90 when it came out in 91. So, um uh, I was not a huge, you know, I not, not say was I was a casual fan like you were saying. And um I've returned to being a casual fan or disinterested fan, I guess, in the last decade or so. So, Let's talk about the, the early 90s for this band. Um, they come into it just so people have a, you know, this is, when we're talking about successful bands in the 80s, there are very few bands that exceed this band. So the first two albums, Boy in October, about three and a half million copies each. Now that's that's pretty good for your first and second record, especially when yeah. those are pretty obscure. War sells 11 million, 1983. Then you have the Unforgettable Fire, which actually dips down to about eight million. Then you hit the Joshua Tree, that's 25 million. I mean, there are the, the there unf- are wildly successful bands that don't sell that for their entire career.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's yeah. wildly successful bands that don't even sell as much as the Unforgettable Fire sold. Right. That's that's crazy.
3: Right.
2: So they follow up the 25 million of the Joshua Tree with 14 million of the Rattle and Hum album, which is a double (laughs) LP. Uh, So that's about 40 million between those two releases in 1987 and 1988. So what do you do then? Because here's the interesting thing about the end of the decade for them is that they were kind of losing their critical darling uh, status. Yep. Uh yeah. and we can get into this a little bit, but mm-hmm. they uh were called Raylan Hum was called bloated, uh self indulgent. They were trying to because they had BB King and they were covering or, or they're singing about uh, Elvis Presley and they were trying to elevate themselves into a uh uh elevated into a status of American blues and um uh rock icon status. And basically, there was a backlash. Even though they sold 18 million copies, they were still popular with fans. Uh, there was yeah. a critical backlash with U2. So mm-hmm. going into Octoon Baby," you know, the band reportedly was struggling with what direction to take and and what have you. So let me ask you guys: um, Were you fans of of Rattle and Hum, uh, or did you find that to be? bloated in the same way that some of the artists or some of the critics uh, referred to it back in the day.
1: Who wants to go first? I'll, oh, <laughs>
2: go I'll, I'll jump in with a
1: short okay, one. I,
2: I remember
0: just being confused because I, I didn't understand what they were doing, like as a casual fan, you know, as the videos are coming on and um, I, I didn't get it. I, I didn't understand if it was like a covers album or if it was a, was an album or just a single or a concert video or what the hell, what they were going through and what they were doing with all the guest musicians and trying to associate them with a whole different kind of music. I just remember being confused and, uh, you know, for somebody who is probably what this would have been, I'm like 12, 13 at this time. Not, not the kind of music I was into either. Um, Elvis wasn't the coolest thing in the world for a 13 year old in 1988. So Right, I I didn't get it.
2: Eric, Joe, what about you guys?
1: Joe, you want to go first?
2: Oh yeah, I'll go first. Um, I remember I I like the movie
3: still more than I like the album. Um, By the time that uh, that Rattle and Hum came out, it was just kind of a lot of, and I think this is like kind of with some of the backlash. It was just so much overload from the Joshua Tree, like that. You know that album was so successful and had so many songs. Uh, my friends' bands like they would play like half the songs from that album during their sets, like they cover bands and stuff. And I just kind of gotten burned out on them a bit. So when the album came out, I was like not very much about it. It wasn't until I actually saw the movie that then I got into some of the songs. But even even still, it's like I I like about half that record, and the other half I just don't care for at all.
1: Okay. Eric. Okay. Um, well, I don't just kind of tell you the backstory and leading up to Rattle and Hum. I was aware of you two all throughout the eighties. I still remember hearing Pride in the Name of the Love" Pride in the Name of Love on the radio and being really struck at how how amazing that chorus is. Um And then when my family got MTV and I watched it every single day between the summer of 1987 until the summer of 1998, save for a few days. So U2 was very much a part of what I was hearing every single day. And there came a point. Um, I mean, I loved all the songs off of Joshua Tree. And then when Rattle and Hum came out, it just kind of seemed like, well, here's more songs. And uh, I remember getting the tape after I fell in love with U2 in 1992 because of ak Baby and seeing all the old videos. Like MTV would air entire hour-long specials devoted to old U2 videos. Um, And so I I was like, uh, this was the first band I ever fell in love in with that I had to own everything that they had put out. And so with Rattle and Hum... Is that I loved it from start to finish. You know, starting off with Charles Munson stole this from the Beatles, now stealing it back. You know, I mean, it it <laughs> it was it made I was a very young and impressionable person, and I love that kind of attitude. It, because it was more than just performing songs. It was actually saying something. And the movie is beautifully shot. Um, there are some songs that are done even better live than what they were on Joshua tree. Like in God's country, in God's country, when edge has his lead, it's just like, Holy cow. Um, there's the version of, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's played with a choir in a, you know, an old church. in I think Alabama or Mississippi, I mean, it just gives me goosebumps even still thinking about it. That said, if you were to, want me to watch Josh, uh, sorry, rattle and hum. Now you would have to get me really drunk because I cannot stand Bono's rants in that movie. It, it makes it very, very dated. And, um, you know, if you could just have like the, the, you know, them performing the songs on a DVD, I'd be perfectly fine with it. But all those new songs that they did for it, especially all I want is you, um, Really, really beautiful song. And I always enjoy hearing Angel of Harlem around Christmas time because <laughs> there's the line of New York, like a Christmas tree. So that's where I was coming from with rattle and hum. But I remember that there was this whole thing about they perform. They said this at the last show at the very end of the rattle and hum tour, Joshua Tree, whatever. And it's like, we're going to take a little break for a little while. I don't know why I think Bono sounds like he's from Liverpool, but, um, it, <laughs> but it was like this. People were like, what? Are they breaking up what's going on and so going into octung baby they're like well let's try something different and i have heard this line about what brian eno did on the sessions of octung baby was that they would record at night and then the following morning brian eno would go in and take out all the very u2-esque things I don't know. Octung Baby is like a logical progression. And there's still a lot of U2 characteristics on that record. So anyway, that's cool. my long spiel about U2. Uh, that's a good. <laughs> for, for that um, era.
2: That's a good opportunity for me to mention some comments from our patrons. Uh, as far as uh, Octune Baby goes. Uh, Retention Pond Honey said, I would compare U2 to the Beatles as an example. Octune Baby is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts. Hearts Club Band, as Zeropa is is the Magical Mystery Tour. The celebrated album was tepid compared to the EP album that followed. The first was safe. The second was far more exciting. So that's an interesting take that Octoon Baby, even though it was a drastic change from Rattle and Hum and and The Joshua Tree, is actually the less uh, interesting album when compared to Zeropa. And that, that actually got some pushback uh from some folks keith sawyer said i'm definitely not the best person to comment on this subject as i thought octoon baby was a desperate and embarrassing grab at relevancy in the new century that diluted their natural strengths the fly symbolizes everything that went wrong with this band in the 90s a terrible idea to genre expand their sound that reveals how incompetent they are outside their comfort zone Zeropa seems like an oral apology with its incredible conservative approach. U2 now sounds like so many of the forgettable mid-90s one-hit wonder bands populating the airwaves, but at least it isn't pop, which doubles down on Octune's desperation for relevancy by sounding dated before it was even released as the lead single, Disco Tech, might have been a Jesus, out- Jesus Jones outtake. To which Darren Svetson said Zeropa was conservative? Uh, And it just goes and it goes on. I'll bring up some more comments later, but I think that that to me is one of the most interesting aspects of the divide in U2 fans is that some people look at Octoon Baby and think this is the greatest reinvention of a band I've ever heard. They took chances, you know, the edge dialed down the delay on the guitar that he was so famous for. And he took chances with all sorts of effects that he hadn't used before. And then some people look at it as this is their, pathetic attempt to be relevant to make uh to incorporate all these 90s-esque sounds with uh whether it's like drum loop sounds or um just heavier guitar tones and and whatnot and danceier sounds and uh it's it's almost it's it's incredible that a band that's this successful has such a wide range of emotion on albums that you know Again, when we look at the album sales, Octune Baby sold eighteen million. So in a three album span, they're in like sixty million sales. And yet there are people that are like this is garbage. And we're not talking about pop music here. We're not talking about right you know Britney Spears or right the new kids on the it, block.
1: See, I kind- Oh go ahead. I I was I was just gonna say it's like I think as popular as they are I can imagine that Mm -hmm. not every like and not everybody likes everything that they have done, which is totally fine. You know, it and it seems like back when I used to listen to Sound Opinions, it was like any time that they would talk about YouTube, Jim Goddess would always have to talk about. I love this band, but I hate Bono. And I think that's kind of how a lot of people see him. It's like music's great. I could care less about Bono.
3: It's true it's almost what you said about like you like the musical performances from metal Hump, but you just don't want to hear bono's rants you know that kind of i think it's the same that's the way a lot of people view it too it's like they kind of like the actual songs but they just don't want all the politics and bono personality that goes outside of the band that goes along with that that turns a lot of people off
1: yeah like he's 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 especially in rattle and hum, they have this romanticized view of what America is, you know, coming from the perspective of living in Ireland all their lives. And they just get so deep rooted in it. And, um, have y'all ever read YouTube by YouTube, you know, this extensive coffee table oral history of the band Bono goes off on some pretty crazy rants (laughs) and uh, it's like I could kind of hang with them. But other times when you're making some like pretty broad uh, comparisons or you have the kind of this weird way of explaining like what your influences were, you you know, it's you can kind of lose people with it. And it's and it can come across. It's such a cliche word to say, but it comes across as pretentious and um but you know when it comes right down to it when Bono sings i mean he's he's still one of the greatest vocalists alive in my opinion oh yeah
3: and in the, as a band they're fantastic i think yeah. you know larry Mullen junior is like um or rather yeah larry millen junior is one of the most underrated drummers out there the guy is just a machine and yeah and uh adam clayton is a bass player i think he's totally underappreciated and and when they had, um, oh, geez, of course, the, the movie just slipped my mind. Um, the guitar movie with, um,
1: it might get loud.
3: Might, thank you. It might get loud. A lot of people were questioning, like, why is The Edge in this movie? Well,
1: why because, was Jack White in that <laughs>
3: exactly? You know, I mean, yeah, he, he definitely represented an era. You had, you know, The Edge was like 80s and 90s, Jimmy Page was 60s and 70s, and Jack White was like the 2000s and kind of all that stuff before it but he very much deserved to be there because of everything he brought to the table he was highly influential guitar player so he Mm -hmm. definitely deserved to be there
1: and i can say this as a bass player in a band that adam clayton's bass playing is hugely influential to me not because uh I, I pride myself in being a very simple bass player. It's because of the fact that I play with two guys that like to go between rhythm, guitar, and lead at multiple t- times throughout the song. So for me to be in tight with the drummer, I just keep it very simple um, and just try to keep a melodic bass uh, <laughs> bass for the bass lines. And uh, I mean, if y'all didn't know, but some of the biggest u2 songs have the simplest bass lines you could imagine because with or without you is literally four notes over and over again there is no variation it is four notes while you know you have bono just singing into the stratosphere and you have uh, the edge playing all kinds of guitar leads and uh and larry mullen jr's drumming the way that he goes between like snare to floor tom you know you hear that on uh with or without you as well as pride just very inventive and so it was really disappointing to read in youtube by u2 is that he shits on all of his drumming performances pretty much up all the way until all that you can't leave behind so it's like dude give yourself some credit
3: oh god yeah especially like those i mean the drums on even the early U two albums are killer. Something's things in like Like a Song Off of War. Yeah. My yeah. God, that's amazing. You know, what I mean
1: Yeah. And, and it it got to another level with Octung Baby. Um right. and you know, Octung Baby, to me, start to finish, amazing record. Yeah. And you could see them really getting into this whole thing of like, hey, it's the early nineties and uh we have all these cable channels and we got all this information and they just kind of kept experimenting with that idea. And I think by the time that they got to pop all that, ex- what they were mocking, that's what they became. And exactly. You yeah. Know, I know to touch yeah. on that because well, the zoo, t- zoo
2: yeah. TV tour that happened around Octum baby.
1: Yeah. Uh, like, well, yeah. I mean like calling the white house and ordering 50,000 or, or 5,000 pizzas or something. I mean, it was just like, it was just, no one else w- could do that at that time, and it was it was just this information overload. But there, it was all spurred on by a very strong record. There are, as I said, start to finish, Akton Baby has so many great songs on there. Yeah, and
0: I just want to point out timeline here. So I think Keith was, what do you say? It was a desperate attempt to be relevant, and maybe even applying it was derivative, but. I mean, this was recorded pretty much in 1990. Right. So, like, this is yeah. right, at, this is pre Nirvana, pre alternative, you know, really breakthrough. This is why they're working on this. Um, I, I don't, I, when I listened to this record and when it came out at the time, it didn't sound like anything I had heard before.
2: Hey, let's just take a minute out from this episode and talk about our Regent headphones from Studio. As you know and as our listeners know, this is a month of Studio partnership. We are giving away a pair of Regents, the ones that we've been using for quite a while now, and that's going to happen on our episode 384, which will be out on the 22nd. We're going to be announcing it on the show. You got to be a Patreon subscriber. Patreon, dot com forward slash dig me out. As long as you are a subscriber by May fifteenth midnight, you are signed up to win. So Jay, let's talk about Studio Region headphones. I don't know about you, but I have basically had these on every day since since we got them. Yeah, because I well because I work from home now. Um, yep. So I ha- I have them on to edit the podcast. Like I I mentioned back when we first got these, I have them on when we record. So that's like, you know, we record one day, I edit over like a day or two. Um and then I also listen to music on them and I when I make music, I use them because I uh I have a side career, Jay, I don't know if you know this as a uh musician. I used to I used to play in a yeah. band you might be familiar with. Uh-uh. And uh but I still do like some, you know, electronic uh, you know, keyboard uh ambient electronic uh, instrumental stuff. And I record with these, and oh, I also nice. uh, listen to a lot of music on my computer via these, whether it's uh, streaming or MP3s on my computer. So I pretty much have these on every day. And, and I, the, the thing to me that, besides the sound quality, which is great, is that I don't get fatigued with yeah. the headphones. I don't know if that's, yep. you find the same thing, but that's the thing I love.
0: Yeah. I'm in. I found uh, just going to wireless headphones, it just gets so much more use out of them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but just not having that cord to deal with, like getting caught on stuff and, um, it just, it, it allows you to walk around. You can have your phone on a charger and you can go do stuff. You can, you know, I'll kind of put them on in the morning and just kind of mill around the house and do all my chores and go outside and take care of the dogs and just like do what I would normally do. But you've got music on and you don't have to worry about, um, carrying a phone around or right. having the cord get caught on something and they last so long, the, the battery life. So I had a prime mine away from my daughter. Zora's had them for <laughs> since, for a while. So she's using them. I mean, in terms of the, uh, the, the, can speak to the durability. She's using them every day, um, travels with them. So we've gone on a couple trips and she's, takes them with her. She you know, takes them in the car whenever we go in the car. So yeah, when we got the white ones, you'd think they'd start to look trash by now, but they look exactly like when we got them, they still work great. So, uh, I, I mean, in terms of wireless on-ear headphones, I don't know that you're going to get a better deal either. That's the great part. It's like, these aren't, you know, uh, super expensive, especially if you use the discount code, you're, you're, I don't know that you're going to find a better quality wireless on-ear headphone than these two, which is also nice. These aren't like crazy expensive.
2: So let's direct people to go to studio.com. They can go and check them out there. Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest at Studio Sweden. That's S-U-D-I-O Sweden. And then Instagram is just Studio. And as we mentioned, during the month of May, you get 15% off your purchase by using the code DIGMEOUT. That's D-I-G-M-E. O-U-T over at studio.com. And we'll be giving away a pair of these region headphones on May 22nd on episode three eighty four. Make sure to get signed up at Patreon by midnight on May 15th. So let's get back to the episode.
3: groundbreaking yeah you know? and, and like i i don't I completely disagree with what he was saying about like a, you know trying to you know uh a grab it trying to stay relevant and all these 90s tropes it's like no they invented these 90s tropes yes you know, all these other bands copied them after they did it you know it's like you're only one like you said this was recorded in 1990 when it comes out you're only one year into the new decade like these sounds didn't even exist yet
1: yep yeah because you got to yep. understand where the where the music industry was, because you had yeah. hair metal be so dominant, as well as pop music, and you had these college favorites that turned into big stars, and they were just on the cusp of making some of their biggest work. REM is another example. Um, right. To a lesser extent, XTC, uh, and and so it was like. The fact that they were making these kinds of sounds in 1990, you know, all analog, you know, recorded a lot of this in, well, it, it, Wikipedia says it was a lot of it was filmed in Ireland. But there there was a certain amount that was uh, done in Berlin because uh, I, from what I remember that the sessions in Berlin didn't really uh, have good material until they stumbled upon one. And right. then they, then they right. finished the record in Ireland because I think this starts the beginning of you two really, really thinking about what they want to do next. And sometimes that works out great for them. Other times it doesn't. Um, because uh, I remember reading in Rolling Stone while they were recording, it was like this in-depth look at how they were recording, how to dismantle an atom bomb. It was like, hey, we're working on a song at 11 a.m. and it's at one tempo. And then at like three o'clock that afternoon it's at a completely different tempo. Um, It's in a different key. And, And so it's that whole experimentation of like, let's see how much we can do with this song. And in the case of one, they thought they had that finished. And in kind of the 11th hour, Edge was like, I got an idea for like an outro and it's that chiming guitar outro that is so synonymous with what makes that song even better than what it, what everything prior to it is. And so, you know, yeah, I would, I would agree with Joe. It's, it's inventing sounds that really hadn't been invented yet. And as far as like the Jesus Jones thing, it's like, you know, Jesus Jones was very influenced by like, um, pre rave dance music. And they wanted to incorporate that with uh, electric guitars and uh, real drums. And it's like, it's, it's a common thing. These were things that U two was into at the time. And because when U two started out, they didn't really know how to play their instruments. They called themselves feedback because that was the predominant thing that was all throughout the rehearsals. When they would practice in the school that they all met at, they were influenced by the jam PIL big time PIL. Um, television, uh, but they were able to form their own sound, and that's kind of, in a weird way, it's a product of what post-punk was. But instead of them using disco beats like a lot of post-punk bands did, and you know they tried to be like as, you know, weird and as anachronistic as possible, uh, I think Steve Lillywhite helped set them in a direction where they were, had more of a pop. Feel to it, and then by the time you know, with them working with Brian Eno on um, uh, Unforgettable Fire, and then with Joshua Tree, but then they work again with Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno. The fact that they created something that sounded different but also very familiar—I mean, it's—you don't have records like that be made. You don't have that kind of arc with a lot of bands these days, especially bands that can sell the amount of records that they did.
2: Do you guys think that a, when a band intentionally redo, changes their sound. Like they say, we are going in a different direction. You know, you two saying we're, we're reinventing ourselves. You know, they're doing yeah. a zoo tour. They're doing, you know, Bono's coming out and he's the fly and, or he's MacFisto or whatever. He's creating a persona. They're embracing yeah. irony as opposed to, earnestness that any time that that happens whether it's this band or if it's arcade fire or if it's you know any band that embraces a massive shift in their sound uh, is going to have backlash because there's going to be people who are just stuck thinking that a band is one way and when you radically change that sound they, they can't Pivot with the it, band.
0: Well, and not all the bands can recover from it. I mean, there's a lot of bands that do it, and then they are kind of lost after that. Like it might have worked right. for that record, yeah. but then they can't get back on the rails or reinvent mm-hmm. themselves a third or a fourth time.
1: Yeah, uh, this was a band that was heavily influenced by touring arenas in England and Europe with U2 uh, about 15 years ago. But I'm talking about Kings of Leon. Um I personally love what Kings of Leon have done since they they full on sold out, okay? They sold out, but there are plenty of people that stand by those first two Kings of Leon records, but then they're all like, well, if we're going to play stadiums, let's be like U2. Um same with Coldplay. Um this was a band that when I heard Parachutes, I didn't think, "Oh yeah, this band's going to try to be like uh U2 in two records." No, I was like, wow, this is like a nice little folky Jeff Buckley influenced Radiohead sort of pop guitar record. And uh, same with uh, Russia Blood to the Head. And then before their third record comes out, what X and Y, you know, on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, are they the next U2? And it's like they can, they've never really been able to go back to what made them special because they're just trying to be <laughs> they they made that change right but as far as far as u2 goes they've kind of just stuck in their lane ever since the stuff with pop didn't work out
2: right well, well before we get into pop we need to talk about zuropa because that one came up a couple of times in their patreon comments yeah. um Johnny Hooper said, I think it's fair to say that you 2 had a very good 90s, being the biggest rock band in the world doesn't hurt. Octune Baby was a bold creative step and the best sounding studio album of their whole career. Zuropa, by and large, was the natural extension of that creativity and is, in my opinion, at least a success. Though the PR campaign and the tour for pop were giant miscalculations, I think the record, though a hit and miss affair, holds up relatively well. And it's the la- also the last time they pushed themselves. And then, um Jeff Loney says, "I am in the minority, but I love pop, great songs, but not great singles, but I think it is overall better overall than all that you can't leave Behi- all that you can leave behind, but not better than beautiful day." So that's an interesting uh comment on that one with regards to singles versus album and then uh Matthew Barnes says, Octoon Baby still holds up so well it had such a moody vibe. And direction and the songwriting is so good that i can pretty much uh can't get sick of listening to it zuropa was the musical equivalent of drinking bland tea and mainlining Zoloff. the next thing i heard was hold me thrill me kiss me kill me off the batman forever soundtrack and i thought it was so badass and heavy for you too i was so psyched for their next record pop but uh yeah we all know how that went down it was at least an interesting experiment though Then Beautiful Day happened and you two went on to start the phase of their career as one of the most boring and least relevant bands of all time. Quite a shame, really. So let's get into Zeropa just because I I really like that record because it's so weird. And um because they took so many chances. I remember seeing the video for numb and just being like, Mm -hmm. What in the hell is going (laughs) I cannot believe that this is on TV. Like that to me was like they can do anything they want and MTV is going to play their video.
1: Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it, yeah.
2: it was such an interesting time in that respect that they could take that kind of chance. But I could also see someone who was really into the Joshua tree being like, what in the F am I watching or what am I listening to? <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't dwell about
3: don't present the pain down like a wall
2: Don't feel the I'm all and see, Don't take it and hold no longer wait
1: Don't put the gate Don't take it on board, don't fall on your side Just playing on the
3: court I feel it getting bored
2: So did you yeah. guys, you know, get that album when it came out? Did you did you yeah, look at I that did. and go, "What yep. the
1: hell?" Got it right away.
3: Me too. Yeah. I went to midnight opening for it and even got a free T-shirt with it. <laughs> I still have someplace. But like like Eric, I was like, I loved Octune Baby when that came out. Uh, I thought that was great. I mean, the, I, I didn't get into this when we were talking about it, but like um, the day Octune Baby came out. Uh, One of my coworkers and I had to go to a conference someplace and we stopped and picked up a copy of Octoon Baby. And that was all we listened to on the way there and back was that record the whole time. Loved every second of it. But when Zeropa came out, I was excited for it. I was all couldn't wait to hear what was going on. And I remember at the time them basically saying how uh, this is kind of like b-sides and some some stuff we were working on it was originally going to just be an ep and they kind of fleshed it out into an album so i think that's why it takes a lot more chances because they weren't really thinking about it too much they were just trying to come up with some stuff quickly and and that's why it has maybe more of an experimental edge to a lot of it um but at the time i listened to that album quite a bit uh that was like when my wife and I first started dating. So I have a lot of memories from that. Like uh, we, we used to play that record all the time and stuff too. So I still like it.
1: Yeah. What I've found that I was so excited when that record came out. Because um, the singles were on MTV and I really liked them. And Stay Far Away So Close is probably one of the best oh, songs oh yeah. I've ever heard. I will second that. I yeah, mean, it's... it's you know, it's a very simple guitar line um, and the video is a little weird in retrospect. I mean, it's like it was inspired inspired by a Werner Herzog film. And uh, but when I, I just revisited it for in preparation for doing this episode, it's like some of the material on that record are like B sides, like Daddy's going to play. Sorry, Daddy's going to pay for your crashed car. You know you know it was um, it, it was it was like b-side stuff along with really really good stuff Red-
2: I actually really like daddy's gonna pay for your crash i like i like when they do that like weirdness and uh take those chances which they would stop doing by the end of the decade um jay i'm curious about you because i don't know where your headspace was in 93 with regards to this
0: i remember when numb i heard numb the first time i was one of those that did not like it (laughs) um didn't get it uh didn't understand where they were going. I, this, uh, this album's got a couple tunes that get a little loungy. Uh, I, maybe just think, like, what the hell was going on in the 90s when bands were doing, like, these little offshoots of songs and albums that were getting loungy? Or there were even bands that even had that kind of feel. <laughs> but, why did that happen? Uh, but I do like um, Stay. I think that's a great song. So I agree that there's some – there's a couple great songs in there, and then there's just a lot of, like, what sound like leftover songs from Mactoom Baby. Or things they threw together, like, fairly quickly.
2: Yeah, in retrospect, it definitely sounds more piecemeal than maybe I realized at the time. But uh, this might have been the first time I bought a U2 record when it came out. Because I don't think I bought Octoon Baby right when it came out. I think I just got that single and then maybe got it later. But this might have been the first time I was like, oh, I'm going to get the new, new U2 record. No, I'm only a decade late in on being on the YouTube train, and it's this weird (laughs) record. Um, so what's interesting is that you know they've had these two records now: uh, Octum Baby, eighteen million worldwide; Zeropa, seven million worldwide. Worldwide, and for what they consider to be sort of like a throwaway, that's twenty-five million. What do they do next? But Uh, They just do a collaboration album with Brian Eno called uh, Passengers, and uh, it's the original Soundtracks One album, which that would be like the Rolling Stones following up like Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street with like uh, having their producer co-write an album with them. Like, what? What are you yeah. It's a really odd move. I mean, I guess they were just like, we can do anything we literally want right now. So we're just going to like work with Luciano Pavarotti and get how we be in here and just do a whole bunch of crazy stuff that we can just... So did you guys even pay attention to when this came out? Were you already yeah. such big YouTube fans? You were like, yes, I'm, I know exactly I'm going to pick this up no matter what. Or what was... What were your thoughts when this came out? Because I was at the radio station. I remember when this came out, we played uh, "Miss Sarajevo," uh, like it was a pop song, and we played it every hour. Yeah, <laughs> I,
3: I, I bought it because it was U2 I mean it wasn't billed as U2 it was billed as Passengers but I bought it cuz I wanted to check it out I thought it would sound interesting it's not a record I go back to all the time uh but one of my best friends like loves it and he actually just tracked down a vinyl copy of it, he was all excited about it Oh so
2: Jay, have yeah, F. I've heard didn't this
0: r- Yeah. Yeah, I remember it vaguely when it came out it was I mean it was like rattle and hum but rattle and hum got like tons of exposure on mtv so it was like that type of move where i didn't understand what they were doing (laughs) without all the media attention gotcha
1: eric what about you i remember seeing the miss sarajevo video on mtv quite a bit but as far as wanting to go check it out nah because it was built as a side project so right it's kind of like yeah you know I'm okay. I'm okay. Now, what's interesting is that this comes out the same year as the Batman
2: Forever soundtrack for the movie Batman Forever mm-hmm. and includes the song yep. Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which is a radically different sounding U2 compared to this album. And if you were to listen to that song, you'd go, oh, I, this, this next U2 record must be pretty rocking if this is the direction <laughs> they're going in because yeah. uh, that's probably one of the best songs of the decade. Or am I wrong? No, I dig it. Uh, No, it's good, but
3: but who would have thought that you 2 would have the lead single on a Batman soundtrack? (laughs) You know, I mean, come on. Who who would have saw that as the next career move for this band? Great point. At that time. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that compil that soundtrack is pretty all over the place. I mean yeah. you I mean it's a lot of Warner Brothers bands, but you it ends with Bad Days by the Flaming Lips. Um yeah. Sunny Day Real Estate's eight is on it. That's how I was introduced to Sunny Day Real mm-hmm. Estate's music. Yeah. And you all know what happened to me after that. Um, but it also <laughs> has Seals Kissed from a Rose. Yeah. Uh and uh then you have the offspring cover. The damned smash it up. Um, I mean, it's just kind of all over the place, and so it's like, well, if you do wants to do something that's as you know as out there as uh, hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me, why not?
3: There's a great tune from Tracy Thorn of Everything But the Girl on that album too. I forget the name of it, but that's Hunter Gets Captured by the Game. I think it's called. But that's one of my favorite tunes on that soundtrack.
2: So this is the point in which we enter probably the most controversial moment in u2's career when they announce an album and a tour before they actually have an album Uh, a giant massive undertaking to which the album is not done yet and they will struggle to finish it and uh they're taking the irony and Disaffected, uh, whatever you want to call it from Octum Baby and amping it up about 50 times, and that's Pop, which is released in uh, 1997. But it seemed like we knew about this album. This came out in March of '97, it felt like we knew about this long before, like a year before, and it was just a, uh, I don't want to say a marketing was more about marketing than than the actual album. But uh, yeah. I remember being in like uh a there's a wing place in Bowling Green and watching like there was like a press conference on M T V.
1: Yeah.
2: And just sitting there in this like wing bar watching this with all these other people, just like, what in the hell is going on? Just like this <laughs> is the most bizarre rollout I've ever seen. Um,
1: and they're all smiling throughout it. It's like, it's like, well, yeah, we have to do this at Kmart. So let me ask you guys about the actual
2: album. We've heard varying opinions that it's, it's a good album, but it's just not heavy on singles that it's, uh, the, they got back to being creative again after the, whatever happened on Zeropa. Where do you guys land on, on pop? Uh, Eric, I'm going to start with you. Is it a, a worthy album in terms of like, do you find it something you go back to or are there certain songs only you go back to?
1: Um, Rarely, Okay. to be frank. Um, Staring right. Up the Sun is a good song. Um, Miami is a good song. Uh, discotheque, um, I, I, I associate that with how the music industry was at the time is that 96, 97, 98, there was this prevailing thought, especially with critics, was that guitar rock is dead. we got to try something new. Let's try electronic music. And since U2 was already influenced by that going into Octung Baby, they've really embraced it with pop. And I thought Discotheque was an okay song, but nothing on that record that I heard on MTV or on the radio made me want to go get it. And keep in mind, only five years prior... Here I was being like, I must own everything. This band has come out by that time. I was all about Ben Folds five, Wilco, handsome, pop punk, Sunny day, right. real estate, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and it was, it, and it's, it's a record that when I circled back to it to, to do this uh, episode, still nothing was really grabbing me about it. And, uh, I, I can't fault them for trying something, you know, trying to do what was the logical progression from what they were doing earlier in the decade. But as far as me, I wasn't hearing stuff that really gravitated to uh, any sort of spark of any of their singles.
2: Okay. That's that's, yeah. I think I'm with you on this record. I like like two songs. Yeah. Uh, Joe, what about you?
3: I, I saw Eric, pretty much what he just said, but I saw Eric's post on uh, his Twitter post the other day, and I'm like, yep, I'm right there with that. <laughs> you know? And the same thing where just like uh, when the album came out, I just I wasn't excited about it. Um, at this point, like the electronic influence had just become tiresome to me. And I agree that there's there's some songs on it I like, but overall the whole album does doesn't do anything for me. And I just I'd kinda moved on by this point. I like I like staring at the sun, but I actually like the, the, the live acoustic version as a B side that I like better than the album version. And, you know, there's tracks here and there, but I don't go back to the record very much.
1: And I don't buy the argument that they have in YouTube by YouTube. It's like, oh, it, it almost was a good record. We just never finished it. And then I think Paul McGinnis says, "Uh, that's not true. Y'all had plenty yeah. of time, and y'all spent yeah. a lot of money making that record. So don't tell me about how, like, oh, well, we, we needed to do this or do that. Because, correct me if I'm wrong. Sorry if I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. But there's that uh, compilation that is all. There's the one compilation about their stuff that they did in the 80s. And there's the other compilation with the stuff that they did in the 90s. And I believe every song from pop that is on that compilation is a remix. I think you're right. Yeah. And that's not a vote of confidence about the record. I know people that love pop. I'm just not one of them. But I don't fault people who love it.
3: Yeah, like I don't hate it. I'm just ambivalent about it. You know, that's that's one of the ones I'm kind of ambivalent about. But I will say, uh, that the pop mart live from Mexico City music video they put out for the tour, I, that I liked quite a bit as far as like like the live videos that they were doing when they would put out tour videos. That was actually a pretty great show.
1: And and their whole village people mock up sort of thing, it's oh, like yeah. what what's yeah. going on, guys? This is I, I don't I don't get the humor with it, you know, but I have to have a lot of things explained to me, but this whole thing about them, like dressing up like the village people as, and the pop Mart tour, I remember talking to my dad about it when it was coming to Houston. I was like, I think I'd like to go to that. But then just the thought of seeing this like really overblown production, um, you know, I, I, I much would have preferred to have seen you two when they were touring off of all that you can't leave behind right it was it
3: was i kind of go back to this period with something you said really really early on eric where it's like they became the thing that they were parodying and mocking you know yeah. by the time they got to this point like originally they started out the decade oh we're gonna parody this we're gonna mock this and then they became that thing
1: yeah yeah i mean it's it's in a way it's like how blink 182 was mocking boy bands and then they became a boy band. <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as how their how the media appreciated them. Um, but in, in the case of you too, it's it's like um, you know, guys, you're mocking this. You were just being yourselves. And but I mean, because at that point the music industry did not really know where to go next. And so the the thought was it's like, well, let's consolidate all the major labels and uh, let's uh, fire any person that didn't have a a record that sold at least 500,000 copies. And uh, then we get all upset that um, people aren't buying records anymore. So clearly it's our fans fault,
2: <laughs>
1: right? It's the audience fault. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it really, you too was kind of at a crossroads because like we said earlier, it's like they could do whatever they wanted to. And that's, that's not something a lot of bands can have that kind of clout and like they could do whatever they want and it sells really, really well.
2: It's not a coincidence, then, based on how this record did, that the following—is it the following year or within two years—is when they put out their first best of. Yeah, it's, it's almost like they said, "Okay, well, maybe we need to like uh, uh, remind people that we actually made some good music back in the '80s." And uh, circle so they, the wagons. Yeah, they put out the best of eighty to eighty to ninety which, um, you know, again, sold like a gajillion copies, and it had a a remade, a remixed version of uh, The Sweetest Thing, which was yeah. the, the single off of that, which seemed to be... I, I know it was an older song, but if you look and, listen to that and then listen to it in terms of where they were going on the next record, that they were dialing it down, focusing on... And I think the thing that you know, which happens with bands that pursue a, a you know a, a a rhythm and groove oriented record, is that sometimes they leave some of the melody behind. Um, is that yeah? You they really focused on songwriting and and melody writing.
1: Yeah, uh, I going mean, it, forward. It, it's what Morrissey's saying about in Panic. It's just like, you know, you're playing music that speaks nothing to my life. And that's, I mean, he's always hated dance music. And that's kind of been the problem I've had with dance music is that it's fun to dance to in a club, but as far as going home and listening to it or or in a car, it just doesn't really connect. Right. So we
2: get to the end of the decade here with, with you two. They've seemed to have fallen into a, a rut or or not even a rut. They, they drove themselves into a rut with, uh, the over promising and under delivering of, of pop. They circle the wagons and they throw out a, a best of to, uh, to, um, I guess, uh, I don't know, build back the, the, the loyalty of fans and, um, head into the two thousands with, you know, Although it's not a 90s album All That You Can't Leave Behind comes out And has a massive Single with Beautiful Day Uh, Mm -hmm. It doesn't Sound like old U2 in the sense That it's not this earnest uh, You know Somewhat political uh, You know early U2 Like war, pride, that kind Of stuff It's a straight up pop song from U2 yeah but not in the 90s ironic version it's a uh a completely earnest pop song from U2 which is almost you know that's not something they've done before so did they survive the 90s or did they in terms of the especially the way that the decade ended for them um they have to basically re- reinvent themselves again? They had to reinvent themselves at the beginning of the 90s. Did they have to reinvent themselves at the end of the 90s to survive? That's, I guess that's yeah. the question I'm left with, with this band.
1: Yeah, I would say yeah. that they had to reinvent themselves because yeah. Pop did okay, but it didn't do great. It didn't do better than Octung Baby. And they just really stripped it down to... There, there's still a lot of electronics experimentation it's just very much dialed down on all that you can't leave behind right um you know because like the intro to beautiful day is very electronic you know edge is playing harmonics but there's all these like delayed keyboards going on and but then when you have that chorus which you watch the U2 live in Boston on the Elevation Tour. I mean, and the lights go up and just, even though they have like backing vocals, you know, pre-recorded, it just raises the level of just how that crowd is. And for me as someone that was watching it at home on VH1 and then later buying the DVD, every time I watch that, I, I my mood is elevated and that's what kind of u2 was missing for a number of years towards the end of the 90s i think
0: it's like they kind of took everything they had done and blended it all together uh into one coherent thing and that's basically what they've been since then right i mean it's yeah it's got a little bit of every part of their sound i think what's interesting between this and pop is that pop was big on the image change and the production changes but from a music standpoint it's not very poppy Whereas this is like really strong pop songwriting and the Mm -hmm. image and everything, they tone it down. I mean, yes, the the stage production is still amazing, but it's really all about the songs and about just them as people. It's like they flip the script on what it means to be pop and focus more on, hey, let's just write some really great, hooky, uplifting songs. And then we can kind of pull back the wearing the silver cowboy hat and the giant olive on the stick and the mcdonald's arches and all the stuff that was going on before that and just do like a really intimate cool stage with great lighting and let the songs speak for themselves
3: right because leading up to all that you can't believe behind that was what me and a lot of my music friends are saying was like we just i'd gotten so weary of electronics and all like you were just saying like all the spectacle and brouhaha that went along with it i'm like i wanted to just go back and make a rock album you know straight up rock album and that's what I got with All You Can't Leave Behind. They they kind of, like Eric was saying, there's still some of those elements there, but they're more in the background. And for the most part, like you just said, it, it's a straight up, it's a pop record. And that was what I wanted. I just want simple music without all this stuff behind it. Just like four guys making music that I can relate to again.
1: Yeah, and I would say All That You Can't Leave Behind really saved the band because they've been able to carry on ever since. Uh, But for me, like I've tried to give No Line on the Horizon songs of innocence and songs of experience a chance, and they just really don't connect with me. I mean, and I realized this when I I had a five hour drive ahead of me last December. I was driving to Lubbock from uh, Dallas, and there's not much between Dallas and Lubbock. I was going to go see my sister graduate with her master's from Texas tech. And so I had a copy of songs of experience and I took a listen to it and I realized like, this is just kind of the story of me with you too. I really like it when it sounds like they have 10 guitar players in their band. And when they don't, it sounds like they have like one, maybe two. It's not as compelling to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. What do y'all think of that?
3: I, I agree in a sense too, because one of the things that, um, when the video for um, Beautiful Day came out, one of the things that I thought was cool is like, Holy shit, Edge is playing an explorer in this video. That was probably the first time he dug out that guitar since the early days of the band. You know, yeah. you never saw him play an explorer in the eighties or, or even like the most of the nineties. It was just like, Wow, they are kind of digging back to their roots a little bit.
2: So where do you guys land on you two now? They've they've released they've consistently released records every f- 3 to 4 years um how to dismantle an atomic bomb came out in 2004 that had a number of singles on it uh, no line in the horizon um that came out in 2009 and then uh songs of innocence in 2014 we can't remember that because anybody who had an apple device uh got that automatically uploaded to their <laughs> whether they wanted it or not yeah and then uh songs of experience just came out last year. Now what's interesting is like when you start looking at the sales numbers for these records, uh <laughs> like Songs of Experience, a hundred and eighty thousand in the US. Oh my that's
1: goodness. good. That's good. Yeah, in this these days. <laughs> yeah.
2: One point three million worldwide. I mean from a band that was putting out, you know, consistently ten million plus every record for a while that's astonishing.
1: Yeah, but it's just it's just the nature of like people like to sample what they want to buy. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people are just kind of complacent with just streaming or downloading. Um, It's no fault of people. But uh, as far as like me wanting to uh, physically own a, a new U2 album, it hasn't been there for a number of years.
3: I will say I like songs of innocence um, but I haven't I I haven't even listened to the new album yet I've like had no desire to listen to it I just I, I just one of these days I might get around to it um, I no line on the horizon that was kind of back and forth about I did like how to dismantle atomic bomb when that came out but um, for as many millions of copies of these albums these size sold or band like REM, you go into your average used record store, you go look in the U two section, you go look at the REM section. There are dozens and dozens of copies of these albums.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah.
3: that from the nineties that they're there as compared to like other bands, because they'd sold so many and so many people bought them and just said, Yeah, I don't need that anymore.
1: Yeah. Cause U two's at the point where the one of the last big tours that they did was a joshua tree anniversary tour Mm -hmm. and so i've joked i would jokingly say on twitter it's like so is bono gonna go off on rants again (laughs) (laughs) um but apparently from everything that i've heard about that anniversary tour they just stuck to playing the songs you know none of this like there's been a lot of talk about ireland you know I mean, when you're spoofed on when Ben Stiller had a show on MTV before he had a show on Fox, but he had a show on MTV called The Ben Stiller Show where they did a sketch called My YouTube 2 Dads. And it was, uh, you know, this this girl is just complaining about homework. And and so then the door is kicked open and it's Ben Stiller as Bono. And it's like there's been a lot of talk about homework. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You know, you know, it's yeah. it's like as far as like cultural pantheon, you too can still play huge places. But as far as getting people to be excited about new records, um, I know that a lot of people spoke highly of songs of experience. Uh, one guy that I trust his opinion was saying that this is the best record that they have done since Octung Baby. I gave it a very good listen and tried to get into it. And I'm like, I don't hear it, man. Don't.
2: Hmm hmm so let's let's reach our conclusion here with uh the 90s did they kill you too from a from a artistically relevant point i guess i'd say or are is is all that you can't leave behind and how to dismantle an atomic bomb enough to say that they survived the 90s and uh we we have we were we have, our decade did not uh, take them down. What do you think, Joe?
3: I think they survived the '90s, but not the 2000s. And if anybody did them in at the end of the '90s, it was themselves. But I still think they survived the '90s.
1: Okay, Eric. Yeah, they survived the '90s, um, even though the pop is just a very mixed record overall to describe the reception. Uh, they still survived. Jay.
0: Yeah, they survived. I would argue they even survived to two thousands. I don't think they've survived to two thousand tens, but I don't.
3: Yeah, okay, that's a better point for me. Sorry. I, I,
0: well, and it comes down to like I guess we have to redefine what survive means now because once you get past two thousand ten, it's a whole new
2: yeah, it's true
0: definition of like album sales. What what does it mean? Like, what's a good what are good numbers and What's actually like success for a band? I don't I don't think we've quite figured that out. We're almost all the way through uh, the tens and we still aren't quite yeah. <laughs> on our feet again in terms of what the hell is success in the music business. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say they've survived it more than probably is more more than anybody we've done uh, one of these episodes for. No, I mean
2: Metallica.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah I certain- think they were more relevant in the 2000s than Metallica was. Don't you?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Metallica was just really struggling to find their footing in especially the post new Metal years. It's like, you know, we want to stay relevant, but we still want to be ourselves. And I think that's... uh, U2 has always kind of swum in their own stream, right? But they wanted to make music that resonated with people. Um, Because, I mean... They had one of the biggest selling records at a time that hair metal was the biggest rock export. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, you would have White Snakes, Here I Go Again, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, Um, and uh, Tiffany's. uh, I think We're Alone Now, Debbie Gibson, uh, Electric Youth, and then U2's With or Without You, (laughs) and then R and then REM's It's the End of the World as We and We It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I'm I feel fine. Um, and then Dud milkman's, uh, you know, punk rock girl. Uh, but the point was, is like this, this inspired rock people. I mean, this ins- the, it was very impressionable on me. And I went back and watched a lot of those, uh, MTV videos or videos that are now on YouTube. They still resonate with me. Um, and this is why, like, I am proud to say that U2 was the first band that I really fell in love with. And I've fell, I've fallen in love with many bands since, but you never forget your first. And if ever there was a good time to get into U2, it was between 87, 92. I would agree with that.
0: And all that you can't leave behind. I mean, that's a full decade after Octoon Baby, you know, Mm -hmm. that they're still at the top of their game and as successful as ever. How did this atomic bomb? That's four years later. You know, it's still relevant. So that's that's significant. I don't. Metallica wasn't at that height in two thousand. Right. You know, they were yep. they were still struggling and had never really. They still haven't written their all that you can't leave behind. That like true re- return to mega success and big hit song.
1: Like they're still trying to do that. Yeah. Well, it comes down to this: What if you were to see you two today? What would you prefer them to? play um do you want to hear sunday bloody sunday again and again do you want to hear some of the new stuff do you want to hear some kind of some deep cuts you know it's it it's hard because they have so many big hit songs but they got a new record to promote mm-hmm. you know and it, it's it's kind of a struggle because like i would say that there's a pr- there's some pretty stark differences between so- songs that are on songs of experience and then songs that are on how to dismantle an atom bomb, and uh, stuff from uh, the unforgettable fire.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, when you're, your career is that long, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. Like I mentioned, the Stones at the top. I mean, the difference between the Stones now and you know, Bridges to Babylon, and Tattoo <laughs> You, and Dirty yeah. Work, and Exile on <laughs> Main Street. I mean, you know, it's it's the issue of any band that lasts that long is that they're yeah. just going to have a lot of different eras and it's going to be weird when certain songs butt up against each other. So we'll get yeah, to and- our, our Rolling Stones in the nineties. <laughs>
1: oh, Wilson. that'll be going. Didn't Bono say that when they got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame is like, Hey, music industry, you wouldn't have given you two a chance the way that you guys are doing things now. And he had a point, you know, True. Absolutely
2: all right gents it's time to wrap up i want to uh tell people where they can go and and find out all about your stuff eric where should i direct people to i i know we've done this before
1: <laughs> theme park uh, experience yeah theme park that's my personal blog um you can also find me on the dallas observer uh i that's that's where the majority of what i've been writing Uh, has been found um still do a podcast haven't put out a podcast episode in a few months but uh, it's called do you know who you are and that you can find that on um stitcher as well as itunes
2: joe where can we find you uh
3: you can find me at sit and spin with joe on facebook youtube twitter and instagram and i i have been uh not able to do a show for a little while just because of uh just personal stuff, illness and other stuff going on in my life, but I hope to have a new show out soon.
2: Okay. And want to remind everybody, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback at iTunes for JM Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out.
1: Thanks for listening to support the podcast. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.